So today we're going to be continuing our series about prayer, and the sermon title today is The Keys of Peace, and you're going to, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, if you want to turn there in your Bible. And we're going to begin today by telling a story of a pastor who was uh, getting ready to move to a different church, and he was beginning to pack up and get all of his furniture into the moving van, and he had decided during his planning that the last thing to go on to the truck was going to be his office desk because the office desk happened to be the heaviest and most cumbersome piece of furniture that he had to move. And so as he was getting ready to move this and everything and he's getting it all set up and he starts to pull it through the house and it's heavy and he's grunting and, and trying to get this pulled through the house, his four-year-old son sees him and decides that that he wants to help. So the pastor figured, well, it's not going to hurt anything. And, and so he tells his son to get on the other end and push. So his son gets in there and he starts pushing with all of his might. You know, a four-year-old just, ah, ah, putting his shoulder into it and pushing. And, and his dad's pulling and he's pushing and pushing. And, and they get it toward the door and they've been pulling and pushing this thing for a while now. It's a really heavy desk. And finally, the four-year-old says, hey, dad, you know what? You're in my way. Why don't you just get out of the way and let me push this thing out of the house? So the father said, well, okay. And he stood back, and of course, the little child's not able to move this heavy desk, but he's going to push, and he's going to try, and he's going to shove. He's going to throw his, his, his whole weight into it until he understood that without his father, he's really not going to be able to move this desk at all. And as the pastor was watching his son try to push a weight that was impossible for somebody his size to move, he felt the Holy Spirit speak to him a question. And that question is, how often do some of us do that with God? In the course of us trying to move our lives along, we kind of say sometimes, God, you're in my way. And then we think that everything in our life somehow depends upon us. And as we push and as we shove and as we try to move our life along, we wonder why we lack a sense of peace. And we wonder why this ideal that the Bible talks about, this joy of the Lord, is such a distant thing to us. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippian church gives some very practical advice that we can use. That if we can just stop for a moment, catch our breath, and reevaluate what we are doing, we will find that anxiety is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not listed anywhere in the Bible as something that we are to aspire to with God. And if we are filled with fear, if we're filled with anxiety, it's a sign that we're pushing the wrong thing and we're pushing in the wrong direction in life. And when you combine fear and this anxiety, it produces a frustration. And frustration will steal your joy. It'll steal your faith. And it's going to allow the enemy a chance to access your spirit so that he can further sow these seeds of fear, doubt, and unbelief. And some of you here this morning might be thinking, but Pastor John, you have no idea what I'm struggling against in my personal life. If you saw what I had to deal with on a daily basis, you'd have the same fear, the same anxiety, and the same frustration that I have. I don't know what you're going through. But I want us to put today's scripture in its proper perspective. 
and consider what the author of the scripture was going through in his life when he wrote this. Philippians is part of um, what is called Paul's prison epistles. In other words, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Think about that for a moment. He wasn't only just in prison, he was unjustly placed into prison. He has been held without a trial for years on trumped up charges that really nobody even cares about except for a couple of Pharisees. So they're keeping him in this prison and they're keeping him out of sight, out of mind, locked up and quiet. The devil is trying to stop the message of the cross. He's doing everything that he can to keep Paul locked away and quiet so that the spread of the gospel will stop amongst the Gentiles and die. Imagine Paul for a moment, locked up in prison, having this incredible call on his life, this mission that God is giving him. Paul called it a weight that was always pressing upon him, that he carried this with him, that God was always speaking to him about doing this. And now he's locked up and he's seemingly unable to fulfill this call on his life. And I want you to consider all that as we read his words. This isn't just some pastor in a nice, comfortable leather chair at a nice, comfortable, climate-controlled office speaking platitudes toward us. This is a man that is living what he believes. This is a man that has gone through a few things. So let's consider his words this morning. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. These are the words of a guy sitting in prison and suffering for the gospel. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the words of the Apostle Paul, words that you inspired him to write, that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, that we can learn to rejoice. Help us as we dig into this scripture today to understand that and apply it to our lives, that you will increase our faith, that no matter what life is throwing at us, no matter how the enemy comes in like a flood, that we know you are there and that you are God and that you are going to show yourself mighty in our lives. Father God, be with us today as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we spoke about what we're going through, and it's not only that we're dealing with the possibility of fear on a personal level, but it seems sometimes like the world itself is falling apart around us, doesn't it? We're living in a day that Jesus prophesied about in Luke chapter 21, when he was speaking about the time right before his second coming, where he said that men's hearts will be, during that time, that men's hearts will be failing them for fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. You turn on the news, you hear about ISIS, you hear about terrorism, and you hear about all these wars and rumors of wars. You have presidential elections, and it seems the media just focuses on 
doing everything it can, depending on which station you're on, to polarize you to the right or to the left and make you hate the other side. We have a popular culture right now that is swallowing all the traditions and all the social order that, that have protected this country for the last 240 years. We have a consumerism of the American culture that can leave us feeling like God is somehow holding out on us if he doesn't give us the same earthly and material blessings that he's given the rest of the world and that other people seem to enjoy. And when we have all of this coming against us, when we have all of this consuming our focus, it's easy to, consume, to succumb to fear. You know, it takes no effort on our part to become depressed, to become frustrated, to, become, to have this sense that we have no hope for tomorrow. And when we focus on the things of this earth, it dims our ability to see God and his plan, not only for our own life, lives, but for the lives of our church, our families, and, and the world around us. But I have some good news for you. God isn't just interested in having and helping you just to survive this life. He's not looking for a people that are just treading water in the midst of a huge storm, choking on water, gasping for air, going down for their for the third time, reaching up and saying, God, save me. He doesn't want us to live like this. God wants us to have a victorious life because we're his children. And he doesn't just love and care for us because he has some sort of parental affection for us. That's not the only reason. It's a big reason, but not the only one. He wants us to survive in victory. He wants us to, to walk as victors in this life because we're his kids. We are representing him. And he wants the victorious life that Jesus gives us to be shown to this world. You can't see the light of a world through a bunch of people acting like Eeyore walking around saying, someday God's going to help me. That's not the kind of victory that God wants us to, to show this world. Someday my sins will be forgiven. You know, someday God's going to come through. Someday, oh, maybe in the by and by God will come through. That's not what he wants us to be like. He wants us to exist in the hope and joy of the Lord. But how do we get there? What do we learn from the Apostle Paul's words that we can apply to our lives so we can have that same sense of peace that he had? That same sense of peace and hope and joy that he had whether he was hungry or fed. Whether he was chained to a, to a guard in a prison or free. Whether he was dry and warm or cold and freezing clinging to wreckage in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. How can we have that? Paul gives us three keys here to live in God's peace. We are to believe, we are to trust, and we are to rejoice. Those are the three keys that we're going to look at this morning. So let's start unpacking those ideas. The first one is to believe. The scripture here says the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks of a God who is near. And not only just near, not only like he is a couple blocks away and we just have to run toward him, but a God that is always present everywhere we are. In the Old Testament, David was a man living in the tension between a promise that God was going to anoint him king and the palace of the fulfillment of that promise. 
God had the prophet Samuel anoint him as a young age, probably around 12 to 14 years old. And David had this promise, you will be king. Yet year after year passes, and he's still not the king. In fact, not only is he not the king, but he's in service to the guy who is the king, and this guy wants him dead. He tries again and again and again to come after David to kill him. It gets so bad that David's friends encouraged him and said, look, you need to take the king out. But David would not raise his hand against him. Twice, David is put into the situation where he could do that, where he could have given God's plan just a little budge or a little boost. He could have pushed against that desk like that little four-year-old and and tried to, to make God's plans come to fruition through his effort. And no one would have blamed him after everything Saul did against him. How many of you are there today? Maybe you have a promise and you're in an in-between time between that promise and seeing that promise fulfilled. I've been there. It's a hard time. Some of you might have tried to help God along the way and end up further behind than if you would have just had faith and let him move in his timing. David, too, went through many periods between the time of the promise of God and when he got finally to the palace of its fulfillment, at least 15 years. But he learned some valuable lessons during that time, and the most valuable lesson that any of us can learn from his life, that during those times of waiting, is to understand that he is there during those times. God doesn't just promise and run away and come back someday. He walks you through the process between those promises and those fulfillments. David learned this, and that is why in Psalm 139, he could ask, where can I go to flee from your spirit, God? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become night around me, even the darkness, think about that for a moment, even the darkness will not be dark to you. No matter what personal darkness you're going through right now, That darkness is not dark to God. Because the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What is in that time that David spent between the promise and the palace? God. What is in that time right now between your promise and your palace, whatever that might be? God. In fact, one of God's names in the Bible is Jehovah Shammah which means the Lord is there. God thought it so important that we understand that he is there no matter what season we are going through in life, that he made that one of the names of God in the Bible, Jehovah Shammah. The peace of God that is supposed to be guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus is what the enemy is trying to steal from you during these times of waiting. The enemy knows that we as humans are very fickle creatures, aren't we? We have a very short-term memory when it comes to the promise and presence of God. 
So whatever you're waiting on God for, whether it be a financial blessing, maybe you're praying for somebody's salvation, maybe even your children or, or co-workers or, or other family members, you're praying for their salvation and nothing seems to be happening. Maybe it's, it's a personal or a physical or a mental or a spiritual issue or you're unhealthy in some way. I would say to you right now, Jehovah Shema, God is there in the midst of that time. And you have to believe. This is where faith comes in. And that is why faith is a currency of heaven. And without faith and belief, you cannot please God because he wants to reward those who first believe that he is. He is there. And that is why the first step to believe so that you can have the peace of God is simply to believe. Believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And if you can believe that he is Jehovah Shammah, then you can have this second key, and that is to trust him. Or as Paul says in verse 6, cast your cares upon the Lord. Several years ago, I sat down with Peter Chung. Some of you have heard me talk about him before. Peter Chung is a missionary apostle to Korea, China, and Pakistan. And I don't throw out the title Apostle lightly, but this man is living the kind of life that Paul lived, establishing churches where there has never, ever been a gospel witness, ever in history. And with that, he has suffered years of imprisonment, beating, hard conditions, poverty, shipwreck even (laughs) once. He has gone through the same kind of things as the Apostle Paul did. And occasionally he would come to the church that Tammy and I got saved in because we were one of the first that that took him on as a missionary to support him. Back in the 70s, Peter Chung, um, when he came came over here from Korea as an immigrant, founded a multi-million dollar construction company. He was a multi-millionaire when God called him to the missions field. He immediately sold his company and used that to finance his ministry and used it to build churches in Korea and and China and and now even Pakistan. And we were one of the first churches that he came to to ask for to be a missionary. And Lakeshore had a very large facility. And we had a a room, a former classroom set up to be converted into kind of a hotel room that when missionaries or, or speakers would come and stay, they would have this very nice room set apart for them that was like a hotel room. It had a TV, had an adjoining bathroom and everything. And he would come and stay in this for extended periods of time when he came over to visit churches that supported him, like many missionaries do. And during one of these stays, I was finishing leading the uh, Wednesday night service and... It was because I was leading the service, it fell to me to lock up the facility. Now, Lakeshore was, is a very big facility and had quite a few doors. They had doors inside of doors inside of doors sometimes. And it would take, if you were going to check every single door in the building like you're supposed to, it would actually take you about an hour to lock down this facility. That's how big it was. And as I was going through and doing the final lockup, the sanctuary is usually one of the last things you did. And I walked through, and just as I was walking down that hallway, Peter came out of his room, and he was going to walk across and spend some time in prayer in the sanctuary. And he said, you know, hey, John, can, do you want to come across and, and, you know, just spend a little bit of time in prayer with me? 
And I'm thinking a little bit of time to Peter Chung is about three or five hours. <laughs> That's a little bit of time in prayer to Peter Chung. I had just come off a 24-hour shift that morning. I hadn't gotten a lot of sleep. I spent the entire day preparing for the lesson that night. And then, he, and then I have a 24-hour shift I have to be up at 5 in the morning for, and it's you know, 9.30 at night now, and going into at least another 24-hour shift the next day. So I'm pretty, I'm wiped out. And I'm trying, I'm like, you know, Peter, I, I love, I would love to spend some time in prayer with you. I said, but I'm just so tired. I got, you know, and I'm trying to explain to him, look, I got to work tomorrow and I got 24-hour shifts and I need to be somewhat alert. I'm, you know, I have people's lives in my hands. And, and he looked at me and said, don't you believe that God will provide anything that you need? Don't you believe that he will provide the rest that you need, whether it's one hour or ten of sleep? Don't you believe that God is going to provide for that? And Peter took me into the sanctuary, and he had some one-on-one -on -one discipleship time with me. And if I was going to be able to, to sit under anybody, it would be him for discipleship because he's just not the kind of guy you're going to say no to because he bears in his body the marks of Christ. And he told me, you know what, your attitude is what is wrong with the American church. Because we're so concerned about our comfort, and we're more concerned about that than we are concerned about the mission that our Savior has given us. And when he comes to America to visit the churches that helps him, he always asks the churches that he comes to in America to pray for the Chinese church, to lift up the Korean church in prayer, and especially the North Korean church. There are churches in North Korea they're secret, they're always under the threat of death from the government, but they are there, and he's even founding churches in Pakistan now, which is even worse, often. And he said that the Korean churches and the Chinese churches and, and all these, and the Pakistan churches used to pray for America to be financially blessed, to have the presence of God, to have all these other things because it's because of us that they are even in existence because we have sent missionaries there. He said, but now they're starting to pray differently. He said, we're actually praying that the American church experiences some persecution. We're praying that, he, that God allows some of the fire of persecution to come upon us so that we would become as strong in the Lord as they are. And that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? That sounds like, well, you guys wouldn't even know the Lord if it wasn't for us. You, that's pretty ungrateful that you would pray that on us. But you know what? They read their Bibles. They seek God, and they see the deceptiveness of what has become American Christianity. In the final book of the Bible, Jesus gives seven letters describing spiritual conditions that pastors especially will have to walk out for as they guard their flocks. And the final, one of the final warnings is this in Revelation 3, verse 17, when he says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's a pretty deep charge. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. 
So be earnest and repent. You know, for far too long, we've tied, even personally and corporately as a church, we've tied our level of comfort and prosperity to being the sign of God's pleasure. But the reality is, God's pleasure really isn't seen in any of that. But it's measured by the amount that a person is willing to die to themselves so that Christ can live in you. That is the measure of spiritual prosperity within the church. And that's why the peace of God can be so elusive to us. Because we refuse to trust him. We're hesitant to cast our cares upon him because we've created this idol of prosperity in our minds. And any talk of picking up your cross and following Jesus is, is dismissed automatically as just, oh, that's just that old-fashioned religion. That's legalism. I don't have to obey that, obey the law of the Lord. Or, you know what? We really need to be culturally sensitive in the way that we... Um, interact with outsiders. And it's always a euphemism for water it down. And don't tell them about sin. Don't tell them about God's wrath. Just be culturally sensitive. Just be nice. And I would encourage you, my church family, cast your cares upon him. Your father is the creator of all things. And if he thinks you need it, he is willing and wants to provide it for you. But remember, though, that God is also wise. God sees every possibility that can happen, and he knows that what will happen. Jesus said that he's not going to give his children snakes when they ask for a fish. He is not going to give them stones when they ask for bread. So that new car you really want, that might be a snake that you take pride in. And kind of look at your neighbor and say, I got a nicer car than you got. That new house might be a rock that keeps you working seven days a week to pay for it and takes you out of the mission that God has you for their life. That new job that just came up that's going to pay you six figures if you move to the other end of the country and away from everybody that will keep you accountable to God so that you fall away from him. God knows. God knows. God sees every possibility and every outcome. That's why Paul says it like this, a little after the scriptures that we just read. He said, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance. I know what it is like to be in need. I know what it is like to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And if we cut our cares in the Lord's hands, and if we trust him with our needs, he is going to meet them. And not only that, he is going to come and dwell in our hearts in such a way that all those things we think we need in this world to have that peace will just simply fade away because we have him. And that is what he is looking for. And when we have that peace in our hearts, when we know him as Jehovah Shammah, as Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace, we will know what it means to rejoice. And that is our third key. Remember what verse 7 said. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You want the secret to having a sense of peace in your lives? Develop an attitude of gratitude when it comes to your prayer life. Too many times we come to God with a laundry list of things we think we need, but we never thank Him for what we have. That is so important in our lives. As I said earlier, we are such fickle creatures when it comes to the blessings of God. That's why people in the Old Testament would set up altars and set up Ebenezer stones as reminders of things that God has done for them so that they would never forget and they would every time they would pass that way, they would say right there, God did that for me. That is something that if we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we should always be reminded when, when the world becomes dark, when, when everything seems to be going wrong in our lives. We should be able to look back into our past and say, you know what? God came through for me there. He's going to come through for me here. You know, just this past week, uh, came home uh, Tuesday morning after it had been so cold. And I, and I started my car in Black Rivers and every warning light's going off on the dashboard. But the car, the car seems to be running okay. Um, I took it to the gas station because the oil light was one of the things to make sure the oil wasn't low and everything was checking out mechanically with the car so I drove it home. Pulled it up into the garage, turned it off, I came back out later to, to run an errand and I turned the key and it turns over and turns over and it doesn't catch. I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's cold or something. So I wait till it warms up a little bit more in the day, go back out, try it again. Won't start, won't start, won't start, no matter how many times I try. I talked to, to Chad Schneider later that night about it at the training that we had at the fire department. And he said, well, I'll come and hook up to it in the morning if it doesn't start, and we'll bring it in. And so I'm looking online and I'm going, okay, it's probably the coil and... You know, I'm looking up how much this is going to cost, and I'm like, gosh, it's going to cost somewhere between three and $500 to fix this thing with labor and parts. And I'm going, gosh, we're just starting to get a little bit ahead, and now we're going to have to pretty much tap out our accounts or put it on the credit card or something and all that. Well, Chad called me, the next, or called me later that day after he came and told it and said, yep, it was a coil. But you know what? We replaced that last year, and it's under warranty, so everything was free. And it just reminded me, and then he fixed something else on the car that was going out, but we had to pay for that, but we didn't have to pay for that coil. I mean, the car still worked when he gave it back, and I just chose to have that fixed. But that was just the kind of thing that God just reminded me again. You know what? I knew before I said, let there be light, that your car wouldn't start that day, and I had already made a provision for it. Isn't that incredible how God comes through like that? And I know some of you might be thinking, what has God done for me lately? You know what I would say to you? If God does nothing else for us, he did that. He died on the cross. 
God doesn't owe us anything else other than that. And if you are not filled with the joy of the Lord, when you consider that you are a sinner on the way to hell, but he went to the cross to die for you, then you need to be on your face and rediscover the joy of your salvation. Because God doesn't owe you us anything. He didn't even owe us that. But he did it because he loved us. And he loves you so much that he not only gives us that cross, but he gives us material blessings. He gives us his presence living within us through the Holy Spirit. What a God we serve. Amen. Amen. God's people should be easily identifiable as a people that carry his presence and his peace in their lives. They should be easily identifiable as somebody who has been with Jesus because we have the joy of the Lord.